Mark chapter 13, verse 13 through 31. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Near the end of Romans chapter 9, the Apostle Paul diagnoses the root problem beneath Israel's rejection of her Messiah. Romans chapter 9 and verse 30, Paul says, What shall we say then, that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it, that is a righteousness that is by faith, but that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law? Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as though it were based upon works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in me will not be put to shame. The difference, says Paul, between those Gentiles who were saved, who entered the kingdom of God, inherited eternal life, and those Israelites who were not saved and were forever excluded from God's everlasting kingdom, lies in the way each one of them responded to the law of righteousness. In other words, when Gentiles 
who did not have the law, they didn't have the commandments, they didn't have the scriptures, when they heard the righteousness of the law as it was proclaimed through the lips of Paul, and the conviction of the Holy Spirit convinced their conscience that they fell short of God's righteous requirement and that they were liable to his judgment, they felt very deeply and very intensely their helpless estate. And upon hearing the gospel of the free gift of justification through Christ, and knowing they had no other recourse but to cry out to him for mercy, they embraced Jesus as their only hope of righteousness, and they were accepted in God's sight. The Jews, on the other hand, who had the law, who had the commandments, who had the scriptures, responded to the law of righteousness either by denying that they, in fact, fell short of God's righteous standard, or else by redoubling their efforts at keeping the law in hopes of attaining to that standard. So the Gentiles received, says Paul, the righteousness of Christ by grace through faith as a gift, and they were justified before God. The Jews sought to achieve righteousness through the keeping of the law, choosing rather to believe that justification was based upon one's own works, one's own merits, one's own efforts. And in so doing, they stumbled over the stumbling stone who is Christ and him crucified. These two ways of pursuing righteousness that Paul sets forth in Romans 9, that of receiving the righteousness of God as a gift through faith, and that of achieving the righteousness of the law through works represent two vastly different ways of pursuing entrance into the everlasting kingdom and inheriting eternal life. And these same two paths are laid out for us this morning in today's passage in Mark chapter 10. Just as Paul set the Gentiles who received the righteousness and the Jews who sought to achieve righteousness in opposition to one another, so Mark sets the children and those with childlike faith who received the kingdom of God and the rich man who sought to achieve the kingdom of God in opposition to one another. Yet the result is the same. The childlike, as we learn in this passage, enter into the joy of the Father's kingdom while the rich man stumbles over the rock of offense and he turns away in sorrow. So this morning, with God's help, my aim is to lay before us these same two ways, these same two approaches to God, the one ending in everlasting joy and the other ending in everlasting sorrow. And I pray that God would grant us the humility and the helplessness of children, that we may become heirs of eternal life and enter into the Father's everlasting kingdom. The main point of this entire passage, I think, is crystallized or summarized for us in verse 15, where Jesus says, Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter into it. Okay, this passage 
is about entering the kingdom of God and receiving eternal life and everlasting salvation. In other words, this passage, this sermon is of infinite importance and infinite relevance to every one of our lives. We need to know how to receive the kingdom of God like a child or else we will not enter it at all. Hear me this morning. If you do not receive the kingdom like a child, you will never enter the kingdom. If you seek to enter the kingdom like this rich man, you will be excluded and you will turn away into everlasting sorrow and shame. So with that in mind, I want to draw out from this text four points about the childlike faith which receives and enters into the kingdom of God. Number one, we see in verses 13 to 15 a lesson on childlike faith. We see a description of what childlike faith is, beginning in verse 13. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands upon them. In verse 13, Mark reports that they... Okay, the they there is masculine. It's probably a reference to the fathers of the children. They were bringing the children to Jesus in order that he might lay his hands on them and bless them. This practice of bringing children to a prominent rabbi for blessing it was not uncommon in ancient Israel. But the disciples, at any rate, deemed that Jesus was much too busy to be bothered with such trivial matters as the blessing of children, and so they rebuked these fathers. And when Jesus saw this, he was, he was incensed, okay? The word there that my Bible translates indignant, it, it literally means he was aroused to anger. It made him mad because it represented yet another gross misunderstanding on the part of the disciples of Jesus' mission and kingdom. The disciples seem intent on operating on the understanding that important people like the rich man in this passage, should get an audience with Jesus, but that children were a nuisance and a waste of his precious time. This misunderstanding on the part of the disciples is a recurrent theme in chapters 9 through 11. For instance, it was the root of their argument over which among them was the greatest in chapter 9, verses 33 to 36. It lay at the root of John's attempt to stop that unnamed exorcist from casting out demons in Jesus' name because he didn't belong to them. Chapter 9, 38 to 41. It lies beneath the request of James and John to sit in the seats of honor at the right and left hand of Jesus in the coming kingdom. Chapter 10, 35 to 45. And it lies behind the rebuke of the crowd to blind Bartimaeus when he continually cries out, Son of David, have mercy on me when they arrive in Jericho at the end of chapter 10. At the root of all of those events lies the conviction that God must operate 
by the same principles and the same values by which the world operates. Namely, that the great, the wealthy, the powerful, and the influential are accorded more value and importance in the kingdom of God than the weak, the poor, the powerless, and the inconsequential. The idea betrayed a dangerous confusion regarding the nature of Christ and the kingdom that he had come to inaugurate. And so Jesus addressed the error head on, and he did it quite forcefully. This misunderstanding could not be tolerated. It could not be allowed to grow. It could not be assumed by his followers and those whom they would go on to teach that the way you get to Jesus is by being powerful and influential. That's not the way you get to Jesus. The way you get to Jesus is by becoming like a child. In Jesus' words, we find three truths which are relevant to our discussion this morning. First, they reveal the necessity of childlike faith. See, Jesus' words in verses 14 and 15 are categorical. They allow for absolutely no exceptions. The reason the disciples should allow the children to come to Jesus and not hinder them is because the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. And then in verse 15, Jesus restates the matter clearly and unequivocally. He says, whoever does not receive the kingdom as a child won't enter it at all. Although it's not as clear in the English, in the Greek text, Jesus' statement is as emphatic as it gets. Literally, we could translate it, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a child shall not, that is, not ever, not under any circumstances, enter into the kingdom. There are no exceptions. Childlikeness, whatever that may be, is an absolute prerequisite to getting to heaven. Unless you become like a child, you won't enter God's kingdom. So what does it mean to become like a child? Well, I want you to notice two phrases, the first from verse 14 and the second in verse 15. In verse 14, Jesus says that the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. In other words, it's not children per se, to whom the kingdom of God belongs, but to those who are like children in some way. And in verse 15, Jesus says that only those who receive the kingdom like a child will enter into it. So what we're looking for is some quality of children that Jesus is pointing to and saying, you adults, you need to become like this in order to receive my kingdom. What is this childlikeness that Jesus requires. I find the answer embedded in that word receive in verse 15. The childlikeness which Jesus requires to enter the kingdom of God is a humble and helpless disposition of heart that receives the kingdom by faith like a child receives a gift from his father rather than a heart that seeks to achieve the kingdom by some work of merit, rather like an employee who receives a paycheck from his employer. Childlikeness means, therefore, that we relate to God as a child to our father, not as an employee to our employer. 
That, I believe, is the essence of childlike faith. So the question is, how do children receive gifts? Well, I can think of two overarching qualities which describe the way a child receives a gift from his father. Number one, a child receives a gift freely, with no thought of repayment. It's a uniquely adult quality which feels this inner compulsion to repay a gift. And we've all experienced it. You make out your Christmas lists of all the friends in the family for whom you'll buy gifts, and inevitably, invariably, there are some people who just don't make the cut, right? You can't buy gifts for everyone. Choices have to be made. But then someone who wasn't on your list gives you a gift because evidently you were on theirs. What do you have to do? You have to go out as quickly as you can, buy a gift, and pretend that they were on your list. Why? Because as adults, we live under a compulsion to not owe anything to anyone. We have to keep our relational ledgers clear so that no one has anything to hold against us. We hate to be in someone else's debt. But the irony of this all is that a gift does not actually impose a debt, or else it isn't a gift. A gift which imposes a debt is actually a loan. When someone gives us a gift, it comes with no demand nor expectation of repayment, or else it isn't a gift. A gift is, by its very definition and nature, free. And children are the only ones who get this. When they receive a gift, there's no thought of repayment. When I bring a, when I bring a gift home to my children, they don't go grab their piggy banks out of the closet, break them up apart and then try to repay me. They don't immediately try to rustle up something that they can give me in return. They simply receive the gift and they delight in it. Maybe, just maybe, they run over and they give me a hug as an expression of gratitude, which is all I really wanted to begin with. The fact of the matter is, There is such a categorical difference between my children and myself that they can't repay me. They don't have the resources to repay me. So they just receive. They delight in the gift which brings glory to the giver. When I give Benjamin a a present, for instance, maybe a Lego set. He loves Legos. My greatest joy is to watch him rip into it and spend the next four or five hours immersed in the pure delight of building. Any other reaction, any thought of repayment on his part would diminish the gift and would rob me of my joy. So what makes the difference between children and adults in this respect? Why do children know how to receive gifts while adults do not? I think it centers upon the idea of helplessness. Children know they're helpless. They make no pretense to be otherwise. They know they don't possess the the resources to 
to pay the mortgage on the house or to keep the lights on or to put food on the table or to drive themselves to school or to navigate through the complexities of life. They're content, therefore, to be served, to be provided for, to be cared for, to be loved. Adults, on the other hand, hate to feel helpless. We love to feel self-secure, self-sufficient, independent. And I think this accounts for the difference as to why children can receive gifts freely and with joy, while adults receive gifts as if it imposes some sort of debt, which then ends up negating the gift completely. Children know that there's a qualitative difference between themselves and their parents so that when they receive a gift from their parents, the thought of repayment doesn't even enter into their mind. How can my children repay me as their father? Furthermore, why should they? It's not their job. Adults, on the other hand, don't like to view themselves as inferior to anyone. Therefore, adults do not want to receive, they want to achieve. So if you would enter into eternal life, you must come to God as a helpless child, and you must receive his gift of the kingdom freely, with joy, with zero thought of repayment. After all, Who has ever given to the Lord that he might be repaid? There is such a categorical difference between God and sinners that repayment is nonsense. So, ought we not just receive what God freely desires to give? Finally, in verse 16, we see the result of such childlike faith. I love the picture. And the picture is important. And he took them in his arms and he blessed them, laying his hands on them. See, only those who come to Jesus as a humble and helpless little child, receiving freely the gift of his kingdom, will know the smile of God and feel his strong, tender, fatherly embrace and will experience the blessings of his friendship. Those who come to Jesus on the basis of merit, however, looking to achieve, will be sent away with nothing, which is precisely what happened to the rich man in the next passage. And it's why Mark and Matthew and Luke as well record Jesus' encounter with this man immediately after his encounter with the children. What does it look like to try to achieve the kingdom of God? Well, it looks like this. As he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and your mother. And he said to him, Teacher, All these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. 
Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. This man is known to us as the rich young ruler, although Mark simply calls him rich. The young and the ruler come from Matthew and Luke's gospel. The word there for rich, verse 22, where it says he had great possessions, is a word that refers to real estate. So evidently this man owns vast amounts of land. He's an important man. But what I find most interesting about him is that even in the midst of his self-assurance, even in the midst of his self-sufficiency, and even in the midst of his his own self-righteousness, he knows he's not right with God, doesn't he? If he thought he was right with God, there was no reason for him to come running up desperately, humbly, throwing himself before Jesus' feet and asking what he lacks. What good thing he must do that evidently in his own mind remains undone so that he may enter into the kingdom. But something is dreadfully wrong in his approach. I find two troubling aspects to his question. I'm just going to mention the first and we're going to focus on the second. The first thing that troubles me is that it seems that this man does not yet, anyway, possess a clear understanding of who Jesus is. At the very least, he doesn't have a saving understanding of who Jesus is. His understanding of the identity of Jesus does not go deep enough, which is why he calls him good teacher. To this man, Jesus is a teacher, a good one, a rabbi, worthy of great respect, one who might just know the answer to this tormented man's question, who might just know the way to God. But what he doesn't know is that the good teacher from whom he is inquiring is himself the answer and is himself the way to God. This man does not yet see in Jesus the way, the truth, and the life through whom we must go to the Father. And I think this is evident in the way that Jesus responds to him. Why do you call me good? There's no one good but God alone. And then he directs the man to the law and the commandments just like any good rabbi would since that seems to be what the man thought of him. You see, apart from a mediator, apart from a Messiah, apart from a Savior, the only answer to your question of how you may receive eternal life is the law. Do this and you will live is the Bible's only answer for sinners apart from Christ. And as we'll find out in a moment, it's no answer at all. Because law keepers do not need a Messiah. The righteous do not need a Savior. The well have no need of a physician. But if this man is righteous, if this man is a keeper of the law, if this man is well, then why is his soul so troubled? It's understated, but I think Jesus is drawing out this man's conception of the Christ. See, a person comes to a rabbi and asks, what must I do to inherit eternal life? But a person coming to a Savior simply says, save me. But the second part of this man's question that I find troubling is where I want to dwell. What must I do? to inherit eternal life. That's the language of achievement. 
This man knows he doesn't possess eternal life, and so he inquires as to which requirement he's missed, which commandment has he left undone in order to achieve what he lacks. This man doesn't view himself as helpless. He doesn't approach Jesus as a child. He views himself as merely ignorant of what he must do, which evidently he thinks is in his power to accomplish. If only he could be told what work he needed to do, what act he needed to accomplish and perform in order to complete the requirements and enter into the inheritance that God had promised to those who earn it, then he will do so. He'll cash in his merit and he'll take what's coming to him. And lest we beat this man up as a rank legalist who is the exception rather than the rule, nearly everyone in first century Judaism thought like this, and nearly everyone in 21st century America does as well. First century Judaism was confident that man possessed within himself the ability to keep the law of God and to attain to God's righteous standard and therefore to merit eternal life. We have a prime example in the pre-converted Apostle Paul who testifies in Philippians 3.6 that before he knew Christ, as to the righteousness that was found in the law, he considered himself blameless. In the same way, nearly everyone in our culture believes there is a God. Nearly everyone in our culture affirms that there is coming for them a day of judgment and that there is some kind of moral standard by which we will be judged, and yet nearly everyone in our culture imagines that they've achieved that standard, whatever it may be. What must I do to inherit eternal life is not an exceptional question. It represents the worldview of all humanity by nature. So Jesus goes to work on him with the law of God. At first, he gives them commandments which are indeed attainable, externally at least. Do not murder. Well, I've never killed anyone. Do not commit adultery. Never cheated on my wife. Do not steal. I've never taken anything that didn't belong to me. Do not bear false witness. I always tell the truth. Do not defraud. I've always paid everyone what they were owed. Honor your father and your mother. I've been a good son. I've, I've obeyed my parents. I've taken care of them in their old age. All these things, teacher, all these things I've kept from my youth. And at that point, Jesus unsheaths his sword, and he deals a devastating blow, and he, he drives it deep into the man's heart because the law commands not merely external adherence to a list of rules. It commands first and foremost that we have no other gods but the Lord. Or to state it another way, it commands that we love the Lord our God with all of our heart and all of our soul and all of our mind and all of our strength. And this man loved something more than God, namely his money and himself. 
This man loved money and everything that it could buy him. Position in the community. Prestige and praise from the people of the community. All of the comforts that money could buy. The security of knowing that that the food on the table was always going to be provided for. All of those things that money can buy, this man loved with every fiber of his being. He had a God before the Lord, namely himself. And so when Jesus took the double-edged sword and he eviscerated this man's self-confidence and laid bare the thoughts and intentions of his heart, what he revealed was a hideous, shriveled, black heart that lay below this man's upright, moral, righteous character. You lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Can you, can you hear the wind going out of this man's sails? You can almost feel it when you read this passage. With his unbelief and his idolatry exposed, he goes away disheartened and sorrowful and utterly lost. This is the antithesis of childlike faith that Jesus called for in the previous section. This man was anything but childlike. He did not regard himself as helpless. He did not regard himself as in need of mercy. He had merit. He did not relate to God as a father as the giver of free gifts to be received joyfully by faith. He related to God as an employer who pays those who work for him, who rewards those who measure up. Which takes us back to the Apostle Paul, who was diagnosing the problem with his fellow Israelites back in his day. Not only in Romans 9, the passage that we looked at earlier, but also in Romans 4, Paul puts his, his finger on the difference between those with a childlike faith who receive the kingdom and those who do not regard themselves as helpless, but rather try to relate to God as an employer to an employee. Romans 4, verses 4 through 5, Paul says, Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. So make no mistake, there are only two ways to relate to God. You can relate to him as an employee who works for wages, or you can relate to him as a child who receives free gifts from his father. The children will receive the kingdom. The employees will receive God's wrath. Why? Because the only work of which sinners are capable is more sin. That's why Paul says that the wages of sin is death. If you relate to God on the basis of wages, you will receive from his hand only death and wrath. And the rich man knew this deep down. He had worked hard, but he knew intuitively that his wages were not eternal life, but rather death and separation. That's why he came to Jesus in the first place, to ask him what he needed to do. And Jesus in his love is trying to reveal to this man to stop working, 
Stop trying to relate to God as an employer and receive the kingdom as a child. What Jesus tells this man to do was absolutely impossible for him, and that is the point. This man related to God on the basis of works and achievement, and so God gave him a work which it was utterly impossible for him to do in his natural state, namely to love God more than he loved money and to love others more than he loved himself. This man related to God on the basis of a law of righteousness, and so Jesus gave him a law that he absolutely could not keep to love God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so it is with anyone who pursues righteousness that is based upon works. It cannot be attained by sinners. The way of works The way of merit is forever shut to sinners, and the end thereof is only death. The only way for sinners to inherit eternal life is the way of mercy and grace, not achieving the kingdom of God, but receiving the kingdom as a gift. Not coming to God as a rich ruler, but coming to God as a helpless child. Now, I want you to listen to me very, very carefully, lest I be misunderstood. What Jesus said to this man was absolutely true. He wasn't playing games. If this man did not love God more than he loved money, and if he did not give up everything that he loved more than God in order to follow Jesus, he would not have treasure in heaven and he would not inherit eternal life. That was true. And the same is true for you, by the way. If any would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would try to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world but forfeit his soul? Jesus is telling this man nothing different than what he'd already told his disciples. Yet it was impossible. A sinner cannot love God more than he loves himself. And so what is to be done? Then who can be saved? In verses 23 to 27, Jesus interprets for his disciples what has just taken place. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible. With God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for any one of us to be saved. What we need, namely to love God more than we love ourselves, is impossible for us to achieve. Every sinner is an idolater by nature, every sinner loves something more than he loves God. And the disciples caught what Jesus was saying here, which is rather amazing if you think about it, because they didn't catch much. 
And they were exceedingly astonished at the implication, says Mark. If what is required is denying yourself whatever it is that you love most, then taking up your cross and following Jesus, then it is impossible for man to be saved. Then who can be saved? See, trying to get a sinful man into the kingdom of God is like trying to get a camel through the eye of the needle. Loving God more than yourself is one thing that a sinful man cannot do. Okay? But then comes the grace. But what is impossible for man is possible with God. You see, selling everything he owned was not in and of itself the answer. It was possible for this man to screw up his courage, sell everything he owned, give it to the poor, but he still wouldn't have loved God. He still would have been giving to God something in hopes of a repayment. He could have done what Jesus commanded in the strength of his own flesh and still have fallen short of the kingdom because it would not have been done out of love, but out of a hope of reward. What he needed was not a change in his bank account. What he needed was a change of heart. And now we see the necessity of childlike faith. So I pose the question to you, what should the man have said to Jesus when Jesus laid before him his idolatry which kept him out of the kingdom? What should he have said? I think he should have said something like this. You're right, Jesus. I get what you're saying. I don't love God more than I love money. And I don't love people more than I love myself. You're right. I haven't kept the law at all. I'm such a sinner. Please, please help me. Forgive me of my sins. Change my heart so that love flows out where before it was only selfishness. Change my heart so that I can love God truly and love others deeply. I cannot save myself. I cannot love in and of myself. I need you. And what would Jesus' response have been? I think it would have been something like, son, your sins are forgiven. Rise and walk in newness of life. That is how this man could have received the kingdom, by coming to Jesus as a helpless child and trusting Jesus to do for him and in him what he could not do for and in himself. Now, watching this entire episode transpire was Peter. And he recognized that what Jesus required of the rich man, which was impossible for any but God, had indeed transpired in his own heart, at least in seed form. In other words, I think Peter speaks truly when he says, Lord, we've given up everything to follow you. I think he speaks truly. Now, don't get me wrong. Clearly, he doesn't love Jesus with all of his heart and soul and strength, or else he would not have denied Jesus and just a few weeks' time, but he 
did love Jesus. And furthermore, he loved Jesus truly and deeply. In other words, Peter had been born again, and his love for Christ would continue to grow and deepen throughout his life. It's true that what Jesus had called the rich man to do, Peter and the other disciples had done. Therefore, Jesus responds to him when Peter says, See, we've left everything and followed you, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospels who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. So Jesus assures Peter that his promise is true. There is an inheritance for the children of God. God is a good father who gives good gifts to his children. And whatever they may give up, he gives back a hundredfold. Now in this life, through the fellowship and joy of the church, and in the age to come, eternal life. And as we've seen so many times before, we see it now again Jesus also says that persecution is a part of the inheritance. And I think Mark is sure to add that detail, which doesn't appear in Matthew or Luke because of his particular audience, the persecuted church at Rome, lest they think that their sufferings mean that evidently they're not the children of God. Jesus then summarizes the whole section in verse 31. But many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. So as it was with the Gentiles and the Jews in Romans 9, so it is with the children and the rich man in Mark 10, and so it remains today. There are only two ways to approach God. You can approach God as an independent, self-assured, self-righteous adult, an employee who gives to God your work and expects back from God your wages. Okay? I don't need your grace, thank you very much, I'll do it on my own. But, hear me, your wages will only be death and wrath because you cannot work what the law demands. You cannot love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And you cannot love your neighbor as you love yourself. Run, Tim, run, the law commands, but gives me neither feet nor hands. Better news the gospel brings. It bids me fly and then gives me wings. In other words, the gospel bids you to come to God as a little child, helpless and humble, and let God work for you. By faith, receive his kingdom. By faith, inherit eternal life. By faith, receive the forgiveness of sins and the new heart that is capable of loving God and of loving others. And receive the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit to help you to walk in that love. The gospel bids you to become last in order that God may treat you as if you were first. And that's the call I issue to you today. Come to Jesus as a child. 
give, give up all of your thoughts of merit and of earning and of deservedness and of self-sufficiency and of independence and of working your way into God's good favor and just become like a little child and run into his lap and fall down at his feet and say, God, do for me and in me what I cannot do for and in myself. Receive, do not achieve, and you will inherit the eternal kingdom. 